Take your Bibles and turn them with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. If you're using the black Bibles that have been provided uh, uh, throughout the sanctuary, they should be underneath seats in front of you. If you're going to use one of those Bibles, you will find Ephesians 3 on page 918. So, have you ever wondered why sometimes there seems to be a gap between your profession of faith in Christ and your experience? Have you ever felt the frustration uh, of the fact that, yeah, uh, I'm a believer, I know God's Word, and yet I often feel powerless and empty. Uh, I feel a lack of communion with God. Uh, Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe, Maybe you feel like you just keep messing up in the same old ways over and over again, and it just really frustrates you, and some days you feel like you're hardly making any progress as a Christian at all. Could it be that the reason why we feel such a gap between our profession of faith and our actual experience is because our focus, our aim, our priorities are are often so different than the Bible's focus and aims and priorities? And if you wonder if that might be the case for you, just check your prayer life. Well, Well, first of all, ask yourself the question, do I even pray? And if you do, then Are your prayers primarily focused on God's passions and God's priorities and God's goals, or are they restricted to your own? Friends, we will never make significant progress in the Christian life, and we will never make significant progress as a church together until our hearts are gripped by God's priorities to the degree that our prayer lives begin to radically change and the focus of our prayers radically shift. And so I am fully persuaded that if you and me, if we together as the members of Harbin's Community Baptist Church begin to pray more as Paul prays here in Ephesians chapter 3, if our prayers become increasingly shaped by biblical priorities, we would experience unprecedented growth and blessing, not just in our individual lives, but in this church as we see the gap between our profession and our experience getting smaller and smaller as God works through those prayers. Paul's revelation to us earlier in Ephesians chapter 3, we looked at it a few weeks ago, um, is that God's plan for the church is that through the church, the wisdom of God might be made known to the universe. We saw that in verse 10 of chapter 3, that His wisdom and glory might be put on display in the life of the church, that, uh, that God's reconciling love is, is so pervasive in the church that it would be crystal clear to, the, to, to unbelievers, to angels, to Satan, to his demons, to the entire cosmos. It would be clear to the universe that God's gospel plan of redemption is real and powerful and is actively and supernaturally at work through His people, so that outsiders might look at the church and clearly see the fullness of God's presence manifested in the church, uh, to the point that they would say, God is at work in that community, in these people, in that fellowship. These people belong to Jesus, and then as a result, God is glorified. That's Paul's vision for the church. And Paul, in his prayer, seeks God's help in supernaturally shaping the church into that mold. And in in chapters 4 through 6, we're going to see practically 
what that vision looks like. We're going to see Paul's vision for the church. We're going to see a church living in unity, a church living in peace, a church living in holiness, a church that is living in love and kindness and tenderheartedness towards one another, a church whose members speak nothing but words of encouragement and love to one another, always building up one another with their words, a church that is constantly imitating the goodness of God and always uh, 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 speaking helpful words to one another. Paul envisions a church free of bitterness and anger, a church that's always thankful. Paul, we're going to see later on in this book, he envisions a church where husbands and how they treat their wives are models of the self-sacrificial love that Jesus has for the church and where wives joyfully respect and submit to the lead of their husbands. A church where Christian parents and children interact with one another and love and respect. How would you like to be a part of a church like that? You're saying, sign me up. Where is it? (laughs) The punchline is that this is God's desire, not just for some church out there. It's God's desire for this church. It's God's desire for you all to be that kind of church. You should be on your knees with Paul praying this for Harbin's Community Baptist Church, that your, your hearts and the hearts of your brothers and sisters in this congregation would more and more bend in a direction that lives up to Paul's grand and glorious vision for the church so that we might manifest the wisdom and glory of God to the universe. So let's now, for the third week in a row, continue our studies in the school of prayer with the Apostle Paul. We've spent two weeks now looking at this prayer. We're going to do it one more Sunday today. And we're learning this prayer. We're looking at this prayer with the aim that our priorities in prayer might be shaped so that God might use our prayers to do something amazing in the midst of this church. So please stand with me now, out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our God. We regularly stand at Harbin's Church before we read the sermon text, just as a way of reminding us that the words that we're about to read uh, are are not the opinion of man. Uh, They're not fiction. They're not fairy tale. These, These words that are being read come to you with the same authority as if Jesus Christ were standing up here on this platform saying these words to you, and they deserve our careful attention. Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to start at verse 14 and read on down through the end of the chapter. Word of God says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your holy and inspired word. Father, I pray for your help this morning. There are things that need to be discussed as we meditate on Paul's prayer that are big and massive and deep. And I, in and of myself, have not the strength 
to communicate the depths of what you want us to know here, Father. So I'm relying on your Holy Spirit to help me to preach this text rightly and clearly, and I'm relying on your Holy Spirit to help my brothers and sisters in this congregation to have ears to hear what you would have to say to this church this morning through this Word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Last week, we um, examined the beginnings of Paul's petitions to God. Uh, in verse 16, we saw that Paul prayed that the church might be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in the inner being, which is significant because often the majority of our prayers focus on the outer being, uh, our bodies, our health, our finances, our outward physical circumstances. And there's nothing wrong with praying for those things. But Paul reminds us here that the truest and most profound changes in our lives and in our church comes not through a strengthening of the outer man, uh, not through health and wealth and physical comfort, but through a strengthening of the inner man uh, in our hearts and the place within us that's the seat of our desires and our emotions, our very identity. The inner man is the steering wheel, the control center. It's what determines the entire trajectory of your life. As your heart goes, so goes you. And that's why most of Paul's prayers in the Bible focus on spiritual matters. Now, the goal of our inner man being strengthened is that, verse 17, Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. The idea here is that uh, as our inner being becomes more and more in line with God's priorities and God's Word and God's interest, our hearts become more and more a fit dwelling place, a suitable home for Jesus Christ. That's where we left off last week. But Paul is not done praying. The next thing that Paul prays is that the church would know the love of Christ, that the church would know the love of Christ. Look at verse 17b. Uh, Paul says that you, may, you would be rooted and grounded in love, being rooted and grounded in love. Now, this is interesting because Paul here is mixing metaphors. We have a botanical metaphor, and we have an architectural metaphor. Architecturally, he likens the church to a building that is laid on a solid foundation, and that foundation is love. And so the believer and the church that is grounded in love becomes stable and unshakable even through trials and tribulations. Or going to the botanical metaphor, the idea is that the church is like a tree whose roots sink deeply into something, into love. And its roots sink so deep into love that the tree will be solid and immovable and strong. And as those roots are sunk deep, love becomes the nutrition the source of life and vitality for that tree. So love is the solid foundation for the church, and it's the life-giving root for the church, which might be surprising for some. Because if we were writing Ephesians, I think many of us would write that you being rooted and grounded in truth. Not in love, but in truth. Because, because we're really big on, on doctrine and truth at Harbin's church, and that's a good thing. We need to be. Right? Doctrine will never stop being a big deal at Harbin's church, not on my watch, not on Pastor Jared's watch. But here, Paul puts the emphasis on love, which I think is helpful, because churches like ours that are big on doctrine, big on theology, churches like ours can fall into a trap that having head knowledge, it's where it's at. 
just filling our heads with information and theological data while looking at something like love as trite or shallow or just very basic in regards to Christian life. Yeah, I know that love's important, but now let's move on to the really deep things. Let's move on to advanced Christianity. Let's talk about eschatology. Are you pre-mill or post-mill or ah-mill? Let's go deep, real deep. Some of you hadn't a clue what I just said, that last sentence. But you eggheads and you theological nerds in the crowd know. But here's the thing. You can have all the theological head knowledge in the world and be completely unstable in your Christian life. An entire church, despite all of its theological acumen, can be completely unstable and collapse into massive immaturity and sin and ruin if that church is not rooted and grounded in love. So if that's true, then we should be asking, okay, we need to be rooted and grounded in love, but, but what love, Paul? And our first instinct might be to say our love for God. And as important as that is, that's not where Paul's going here. Context helps you, and you can cheat and look ahead a little bit to verse 19 and see where this is going. This is not about your love for God, it's about God's love for you in Christ. That's absolutely critical. And for some of you, this may be a profound brand new revelation, that the nutrition and spiritual stability of your life is not ultimately meant to be rooted and grounded in your love for Jesus and your performance for Jesus and your faithfulness to Jesus, but it is instead rooted in His performance, His faithfulness, and His love for you. And that makes all the difference in the world. Because for some of you, Your sense of spiritual stability and security rises and falls based on how well you think you love Jesus at any given moment, which means that you're spiritually all over the place in regards to your sense of stability and peace because your love is all over the place. Sometimes you love Him, other times you don't. And even when you do love Him, you know that you don't love Him as well as you should. Welcome to spiritual instability and depression which is what happens when you make it all about you. As if the foundation of your Christian life is the strength of your love and your obedience. Now, I'm not saying that love and obedience for Jesus is optional. <laughs> that, that it doesn't matter whether you, whether you love Him or not. Uh, don't hear me saying that. What I'm saying is that at the core of the foundation of who you are in Christ, that thing that the foundation of your Christian life is to be built on is not your love for Him, but His love for you which is why Paul begins Ephesians exactly the way that he does. He doesn't begin the book of Ephesians by telling the Ephesians how wonderful they are and glorifying their love for God as if that is at the foundation of their spiritual lives. Instead, Paul begins the book focused on God's love, that God blessed us with every spiritual blessing, that He adopted us as sons, that He redeemed us through the blood of His Son, that He's forgiven us of our sins, that we've obtained a heavenly inheritance in Him, that we've received the Holy Spirit as a deposit, as a guarantee, and an assurance that one day we will receive the fullness of that inheritance in heaven. And and that's all just chapter 1. And in chapter 2, it gets even better because we discover that God has done all of these marvelous things for people who are absolutely awful. People like us. Uh, People who rejected God who chased after our own sinful passions and followed after the devil and were by nature children of wrath deserving nothing but judgment. But God, Paul says, being rich in mercy, raised us up from spiritual death and has seated undeserving sinners like us with Christ in the heavenly realms. And remember, 
going back to chapter 1, he chose to do this for us before the foundation of the world, knowing full well in advance what wretches we would be. Isn't that wonderful? And so I'm reading this, and I'm reading this in love. He predestined us for adoption. I'm saying, are you kidding me? That's crazy. It is crazy, but it's true. And it is in those truths that we need to be rooted and grounded in before we can progress any further in the Christian life. In fact, being rooted and grounded in his love is the necessary condition for the next part of Paul's prayer to be fulfilled. Uh, Being rooted and grounded in his love is just a starting point for something more. In verses 17 and 18, Paul says that us being rooted and grounded in love gives us the strength to do something that we desperately need to do. He prays that the church, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend something. Comprehend is, the, is, um, is um, from the Greek word katalambano. It can be uh, translated as seize or grasp or lay hold of, the idea is that he really wants the church to apprehend this, to really get this. What does he want them to get? He prays that they would comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of what? There's no obvious object there, right? He he just kind of leaves off after that. But before we get to that, to think about what Paul is referring to, we should briefly consider this language that Paul uses here. He's giving them geometrical, dimensional terms. It's the shape of a cube, the breadth and length and height and depth. And that kind of language is, is a way of describing something that is really, really big, really immense, really massive. How massive? Well, we see this kind of language in the Old Testament in Job chapter 11, where we find a series of questions, and they are rhetorical questions, and they're meant to convey a point. You can look at this with me in Job 11. Can you find out the deep things of God? You can answer that if you want. It's no. (laughs) Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? Absolutely not. It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. So, again, we have dimensional language. And and what's the point? The point is that God is so big and so massive that He is without limits. He uses dimensional language of something that actually can't be contained in dimensions. You can't make a cube big enough to fit God in. You can think of a container as, as, uh, as big of a container as you want. God's going to be bigger than that. He, he is, he's talking, God is something that you can't grasp. As, as John Calvin wrote, finitum non capax infinitum. The, the finite cannot grasp the infinite. And yet, here's the kicker, going back to Paul's prayer. He prays that we might have the strength to comprehend, to seize, to grasp the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of something massive. And what is it? Well, different folks give different answers, but I think context dictates what our answer should be. And again, verse 19 helps us, where after giving those dimensions, he says, and to know the love of Christ. In short, Paul wants us to grasp, to know the limitless dimensions of God's love for us in Christ. And of course, since God's love is infinite, and because we are finite, I don't think Paul is expecting that we become infinite in our understanding. That will never happen. 
But I do think that Paul is praying that his readers would experience an ever-increasing expansion of their knowledge of God's love, that they would more and more plumb the depths of his love. But since it's without limit, no matter how far you plumb, there's always more. There's always more dimensions of his love to know. Now, in our modern American culture, we've gotten to a point where we aren't certain exactly even what love is. To some people, love is just romance. To others, love is approval and affirmation. To others, love is just simply being nice. But the Bible gives us the ultimate definitive example of what love is when the Apostle John writes, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's what love is. Love is God looking at a world full of sinners like us, who hated Him and despised Him and essentially spat in His face, sinners who deserve death and hell, but He loved those sinners so much that He sent Jesus into the world to be a propitiation, a substitutionary wrath-bearer on behalf of those of us who deserved His wrath. Jesus took God's wrath in the place of sinners so that, so that if you're here this morning, no matter how bad you've been, no matter how much you've shunned God, nevertheless, if you in this moment turn away from your sins, if you stop trying to be your own Lord and Master, and you receive Jesus Christ by faith, putting your trust in His propitiatory work on the cross, receiving Him as Lord and Master, you'll be saved. Folks, that's love. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's love. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane facing the horror of the cross, the, the horror of more than just being nailed to a piece of wood, but the worst horror of facing the Father's wrath as a substitute, He nevertheless, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame. For what joy? For the joy of saving you and bringing you into His family. That's love. And it is this love that Paul wants you to know. And when Paul uses the word know in verse 19, he's using it in a way that means more than mere intellectual data going into your brain. He's using this word more in the Old Testament sense, where the word means intimate experiential knowledge, a knowledge that is personal, kind of like what you see in Genesis 4. Adam knew his wife Eve. What, what does that mean? That doesn't mean, oh, there's Eve, I know her. In the next verse, she's pregnant. It's not, it, it, the knowing there is, is a, it expresses a, a deep, intimate, personal knowledge. You see, Paul is writing to a people who obviously already have some understanding of God's love for them. They're Christians, after all. They know the gospel, and part of the gospel message is, is God's love for sinners. But the fact that Paul is praying that they be rooted and grounded in love and that from that starting point that they may move on to further grasp the limitless dimensions of God's love means that Paul knows the Ephesians don't appreciate God's love experientially as they ought. And this is what Paul's getting at. He wants the Ephesians to seize the love of Christ for them in such a way that it seizes them, that it moves from being just a head thing to becoming a heart thing to the point that it affects their hearts and actually transforms their lives. Because as the heart goes, 
so goes you. I think this is what Paul is getting at with his ironic words in verse 19, where, where Paul is praying that the Ephesians would know something that surpasses knowledge. That, that's, that's strange. How can you know what's beyond knowledge? You can't, but you can experience it. Again, it's, it's when the knowledge in your head grips your heart, uh, it, where, where it's no longer cold doctrine. It, it is instead something that sets your heart ablaze. Samuel Rutherford wrote from prison in Aberdeen, Love, love, I mean Christ's love, is the hottest coal that ever I felt. Cast all the salt sea on it, it will flame. Hell cannot quench it. Many, many waters will not quench love. For those who have not experienced this love, no words will suffice. For those who have experienced it, no words will quite do. And my concern is that because we at Harbin's are so often fixed on theological precision and doctrine and so suspicious of an experiential Christianity that is detached from truth, and we do see that we do see in some churches that happening, and they go off uh, detached from the Word of God, and they and, and they go off the deep end into uh, experiences and getting all kinds of crazy and mysticism and bizarre practices. We don't want to go there, and yet I wonder if sometimes we overcorrect, and we become stoically intellectual to the point where we are reluctant to even seek after the uh, experiential things, even if it's good and biblical like seeking a deeper experience of God's love for us in our hearts. And yet Paul here prays for the Ephesians. He, he prays that they would have an ever-increasing experience of this love. And I wonder if that's something that you ever pray for yourself. Do you need to maybe incorporate Paul's prayers into your own prayer life? Uh, praying with Paul about these matters, not just for yourself, but, but praying this for our church, that we together would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. What might happen if we regularly incorporated this into our prayer lives? What might happen to us personally? And what work of the Spirit might happen in our church collectively? Well, I say let's, let's begin together as a congregation earnestly praying as Paul prayed, and let's find out, and let's see what happens. Secondly, Paul prays that the church would discover God's love in community, in community. I wonder if you noticed in verse 17 that Paul prays that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. Now, that is very important. Right in the middle of Paul's petition about our growing understanding of Christ's love, he reminds us that sanctification and growth in the things of God is a community project. You know, often we read the Bible individualistically. We're an individualistic kind of people. It's part of our modern American culture. We, we like to go our own way, chart our own course, do our own thing, and while we like having friends, we don't ultimately want to be bound in those relationships to, to the degree where we're actually held accountable. We don't want to get in anyone's business, and we don't want anyone in our business. That's the American way. But, it, but it's not biblical. It's not biblical. And this individualistic attitude has even affected Christians to the point where you have professing believers refusing to join a local church. They may show up sometimes at church, but they keep the church at arm's length, or they rotate churches, or they, or they may stay, stay at church for a while, but then they like cut and run when things get hard. But y'all, the Bible wasn't written to individuals. It was written to and for congregations. And, and in contrast 
to professing Christians who believe that all they need is themselves, their Bible, and God, folks, you will never grow as much as you need to grow if you're disconnected from a local church. And here, Paul's telling us that we will not comprehend God's love to the degree that we need to apart from the church. David Clarkson, uh, an old English Puritan, in a wonderful sermon on public worship, gets at Paul's message really well here when he says, he says, the Lord engages Himself to let forth, as it were, a stream of His comfortable quickening presence to every particular person that fears Him. But when many of these particulars join together to worship God, then the several streams are united and meet in one so that the presence of God, which enjoyed in private is but a stream, in public becomes a river, a river that makes glad the city of God. The Lord has a dish for every particular soul that serves Him. But when many particulars meet together, there is a variety, a confluence, a multitude of dishes The presence of the Lord in public worship makes it a spiritual feast. You see, friends, the love of Christ can be enjoyed and tasted individually, like a dish eaten alone, but when all of God's people join together, and we do life together, and we serve one another, and we encourage one another, and even hold one another accountable when necessary, then the love of Christ becomes like a spiritual feast. So you want to experience more of Jesus' love? Great then put a priority on being where He has promised to meet you and, and, and promised to, to demonstrate and manifest his, his, his love, and that is in the context of the church. Do your best to, to be involved in the community of faith, not just on Sunday mornings, but in Bible studies, in prayer times, small groups, fellowship meals. We're about to have one in just a moment. Informal times where you're reaching out to one another and you're doing life together. To cut yourself off from the life of the church is to cut yourself off from a greater experience of God's love. This does not mean that the members of the church will love you perfectly, or you will love them perfectly. You won't. But God in His wisdom has ordained that we would learn more of God's love together than we will in isolation. So are we going to take Him on on His Word and trust Him with that, or not? John Stott wrote that it needs the whole people of God to understand the whole love of God. But there's more. As we come to the climax of Paul's petitions at the end of verse 19, we discover Paul's end goal in all of this. Why does Paul pray for strength in the inner man? Uh, Why does he pray that Christ dwell in our hearts through faith, that we might be rooted and grounded in love so that we might have the strength to comprehend what is the breadth and length and width and depth of Christ's love? What's the point? Where's all this going? Here's the answer, end of verse 19 that you may be filled with the fullness of God. That's my third observation, that the church might be filled with the fullness of God. Now, what does that mean? I think we get some help here when we look at similar language that Paul uses elsewhere in Ephesians. If you flip back to chapter 1, at the end of the chapter, Paul talks about Jesus being the head of the church and the church being Christ's body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. So, the church is the fullness of Jesus. Uh, The church is to image Jesus. The church is to represent Jesus, to look like Jesus. I think that's the point. And then if you flip forward to chapter 4, 
Paul again talks about the church being Christ's body. And in verse 13, Paul says that the goal is that we all, the church, attain mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So, going back to chapter 3, I think Paul is praying that the church might grow up into looking like Jesus. That, that we would be so filled with Jesus that we would look like Him. Paul essentially is praying for a restoration of what was lost in the garden long ago. Remember that God created the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, with a purpose that they would be His image bearers in the world, that they would reflect God's goodness and purity and love and character, and they, and they were to be fruitful and multiply, and as they had children, they too would be perfect image bearers so that there may be a world full of people who can look at one another and say, you look just like God. I see His glory and His beauty in you. That was man's original design and purpose. And so what Paul is praying is that God would make us into what we were originally designed to be and and more. Going back to Ephesians 2, Paul tells us that the church is God's temple, God's building, God's house. That's Old Testament language. And in the Old Testament, what did God do with His temple? What, What did He do with His house? He indwelt it. The, 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 the beauty and the, the brightness of, of the glory of God, that Shekinah glory of God, descended and filled the temple with the fullness of His glory to the point that it was obvious that God was present there in a way unlike anywhere else on earth. This was God's place. This was where God could be seen and, and manifested in a special way. And so fast forward to Ephesians 2, where Paul says that the church is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. He says, in Him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And this is the backdrop, I think, of Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We, the church, have become God's temple, the place where God dwells, not in a physical building as in the days of old, but in us in our hearts. And Paul is praying that His glory would be made so manifest in us that we, the church, would increasingly look like God, imaging His goodness and His purity and His character to the world. That as in the days of old, when the surrounding pagan nations looked at Israel and knew that God was there, that those with eyes to see could clearly see that God was in their midst in a special and supernatural way, So the world today should look at the church and see that we are not like anything or anyone else, that there's something unique and different and special about us. And those with eyes to see may see and know that God is in our midst. God lives here, not in the physical building, but in us as the people of God. And in Ephesians 4 through 6, Paul describes practically what the glory of God looks like in a people that are filled with His fullness, a people that love one another, that serve one another, that encourage one another, that are in unity with one another. And why? So that we might just enjoy being the church? No. But so that the wisdom of God might be made manifest to the universe. And so we might be the light of the world pointing the world to Jesus. This is what it means to be a church that is mature and filled with the fullness of God. You see, the mature church is not one that simply has all of its doctrine right and can quote the New Testament in the original Greek and has all its eschatology down. And by the way, those last two things, I can't, I don't, (laughs) I make no claim. Too often, we have equated maturity with knowing a lot of stuff. 
And ultimately, we learn from Paul's prayer that the Bible equates maturity with love. First, knowing and grasping God's love for us, which then fuels our love for God. And then as our love for God grows, what does it do? It then empowers us to love others. The Bible says that we love because He first loved us. And so, for example, in the next chapter, Paul is going to tell us, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Later on, he's going to say, walk in love as Christ loved us. And then still later in the book, he's going to say, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Are you noticing the pattern? You can't obey any of those commands. You can't be the church that you're supposed to be. You can't be the kind of husband you're supposed to be, the kind of ambassador for Jesus that you're supposed to be. You can't be filled with the fullness of God unless you first know and grasp the love of Christ for you. Christian maturity is not about being a know-it-all and having all the answers. Elsewhere, Paul writes, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge but have not love, I'm nothing. You see how immensely practical this is? You can't be an effective Christian, and we can't be an effective church until we begin to really know and experience the deep, deep love of Jesus for us, where we seize it to the point where it seizes us, and we can cry out with Paul in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Notice Paul doesn't say who loves sinners generically somewhere out there, but he loved me. He gave himself up for me. Paul is gripped by the love of Christ uh, for him personally, and the life that he lives now is rooted and grounded in Jesus' love for him. It is impossible to be a mature, thriving Christian, effective for God's kingdom, loving others, apart from a growing awareness and appreciation of God's love for you, which is why some of the most harsh, cruel, unloving people are legalistic people, because a legalist isn't secure in God's love. A legalist feels like he has to earn God's love, and he is so obsessed with that that he can't even, he doesn't even have time to think about loving other people. But to be rooted and grounded in God's love, to be growing in the knowledge of God's love, frees you up to love others. It frees you up to serve others, to preach the gospel without fear, and to lay your life down on the mission field for others because you know that nothing can separate you from the love of God. And so this brings us full circle to the question that I've been asking us these past few weeks. How do you pray? How do you pray for yourself? How do you pray for this church? Do, you, do, you, do we actually pray with these kinds of priorities Do these things dominate our prayers? Are these the kinds of petitions uh, uh, happening, and are they a reflection of the passions of our hearts? Are we praying for strength in the inner man so that more and more our hearts are shaped according to the desires and priorities of Christ? And are we praying for a greater understanding and experience of Christ's love in our lives? Or are our prayers primarily prayers that revolve around the outer man and physical matters? And again, I reiterate that it is well and good to pray for those things, but those are not the kind of prayers that are really going to release the full extent of God's power in your life and in the life of this church. 
for, for us to be filled with the fullness of God. And so, and so we're missing out. We're missing out because our priorities in prayer are not as they should be. And so again, brothers and sisters, if we want to see God take us personally and collectively as a church to new heights of glory, new depths of spirit-driven love, new levels of kingdom impact as God's ambassadors in the world, then I urge you to incorporate this prayer from Paul and other New Testament prayers like it into your personal prayer life because you can't do better than praying the prayers of the Bible. And if you're, if you're looking at this prayer, and as we begin to look through the next few chapters of Ephesians in the weeks ahead, and, and you're struggling with some doubt, and you're tempted to think, well, can, can God do this? Can God really do a work in my life to the point where I can grasp God's love more? and where I love him more, and where I love others more? Can God really do that? I've I've felt so stuck for so long. My life is such a mess. I'm weak. I'm empty. Can I really move forward? Can I really break free from the sin that so easily entangles me? And can God really sweep through Harbin's church in such a way that we together can be filled with the fullness of God? Really? Can that really happen? Can God actually do that to a people like us? And for someone like me, if that's your question then my answer can do no better than Paul's answer in verse 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm trusting you right now. I'm trusting that you are doing things that I can't do, which is speaking deeply to the hearts of my brothers and sisters here through your word. Father, we pray that you would give us strength in the inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts more and more through faith. Father, we pray that we would be rooted and grounded in love and that we may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, that we might know the love of Christ, really know it, really know, not just head knowledge, that we might experience the love of Christ, that we might seize it to the degree that it seizes us a love that surpasses knowledge that we might be filled with all the fullness of God for the glory of God. Would you work in our church in this way starting now and in the days ahead? In Jesus' name, amen.